Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, the 728th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms, but not Spotify. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So this is the week. In Davos, the World Economic Forum is doing its very special yearly conference where all of the most elite Nazis in the world, including many children and grandchildren of actual Nazis, not a joke, not a joke. They get together and plot humanity's destruction. I mean, future, the future utopia that we can enter as soon as we give them all of the power and money and control over everything, they will fix the polycrisis for all of us. 
But the thing is, it's important to remember when you're speaking of the global agenda that it is pure fiction. Nothing about it is real. They make up the problems. They create the problems. Then they create supposed solutions that allow them to further consolidate all of the wealth and status and power in the world, collecting it for themselves and their partners while never actually solving any of the problems, because if they solved all of these big problems, then they wouldn't be able to talk about how they're going to solve all these big problems, which is what allows them to consolidate wealth and status and power. Now, the silliest crisis that they are continuously focused on is the idea that the sun is attacking the earth and sooner or later will win unless humanity does whatever these people say. And the spokesperson for the last however many years has been a clueless and petulant Swedish teenager named Greta Thunberg. She is the hero of the world, according to the left, except for the fact that she's just in many ways not real. Just in this past week, she has attended two different protest events where she was ushered away by police. We are told she was detained. In yesterday's protest, she was supposedly defending some German village against the expansion of a coal mine. What symbolism? And the German police led her away. And this was the second time this week that's happened. It happened on Sunday as well. Greta Thunberg, the angry little teenager who is saving the world from the sun, was doing a big activism dropping a huge resist in the big potty, very impressive to all the commie mommies out there. And the powers that be just couldn't deal with such powerful resistance, so they called in the jackboots to remove the famous-for-nothing climate activist. Now, naturally, all of this was filmed, and it's all supposed to look like it's filmed on a cell phone, all very real. Greta is being denied her right to protest how are we going to save the earth from the sun now? Except it turns out that she also had a big film crew around her. Cameras everywhere. Boom microphones extended over the police as they led her away. There's footage of her laughing and chatting with the police before they led her away. It was all absolutely 100% staged. They carried her out. And if you want to see the video for yourself, you can just search the info stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. Just look for Greta in there or probably the word staged and you'll find it. The BBC actually had to do reporting on this because obviously the fact that Greta Thunberg is staging and faking her activism, well, that's big news. And so what we need is a fact check to protect Greta. From the BBC's report, they quote a spokesperson for local German police who said, we would never give ourselves to make such recordings, but probably sounds a little more honest in the uh, original German. Naturally, no one will admit that Greta's activism, like most communist activism, is just staged. It exists for the cameras. But this one was even a little beyond that because she was wearing some sort of shoulder pack purse fanny pack hybrid thing around her body with a big Nike logo on it. And you can imagine that Nike had a commercial planned in the future with Greta Thunberg. Oh, Nike, always concerned about 
environmental justice. If they end up still using that footage for a Nike commercial, I am going to laugh until the end of days. So yesterday I recorded an episode about my feelings on Donald Trump and the vaccine and why he will not to date make a statement, admit in some way that the vaccines aren't very safe. They aren't very effective. They happen to be harming people and killing people. And how can Donald Trump allow that to continue? Now, I knew my explanation was not going to make everybody happy. And of course, it didn't made many people happy. A lot of people liked it. And thank you. I'm glad you liked it. But I also got some feedback saying, essentially, aren't you a little worried that you're always defending Trump on pretty much everything? And to that, I say no. And I have these conversations often with good friends of mine who are on my side, but also that I take these things too far sometimes. And that's just fine for people to feel that. And those critiques often go, can't you admit that Trump did the wrong thing here? Can't you admit that Trump did the wrong thing here? Can't you admit that Donald Trump would be a more attractive politician to a wider segment of the population if he did X or Y or Z, if he curtailed his language or his tweeting, if he talked less about himself and more about the movement? And I get why people say that. But my answer is still no, because here's the thing. A lot of the interpretation, a lot of the baseline interpretation that spreads throughout culture about what it is Donald Trump has done, what the actual events are, what Donald Trump's role in those events is, and how we should perceive Donald Trump after these events, these statements, when we analyze his role, is shaped by the story the media is telling us and by the impressions often derived solely from media about who Donald Trump is and what he represents. And at the end of the day, a lot of those discussions go back to Donald Trump being a narcissist, both historically and in the present, being somehow too weak, not smart enough, or not competent to surround himself with the right people, let's say, or make the right decision in a tough situation. Now, I understand all of those complaints, and at face value, those complaints might be right, but I'm not interested in face value interpretations, and I'm not interested in casting judgment about face value interpretations. I want to understand what's actually going on. And so to do that, you need to apply certain heuristics. You need to use different lenses to view these situations and these events. And I'm committed to trying to understand these things on multiple levels to see what makes the most sense, what continues to map onto reality, which theories have predictive quality. How can we best guide our world? Now, I often say that I analyze everything not on whether I think it's good or bad or that the immediate consequences seem good or bad, helpful or harmful. I only care about whether or not things promote the awakening on a mass scale or hinder that awakening. And so I believe that a lot of the things Donald Trump does, quote unquote, wrong, or instances where he has, quote unquote, failed, actually push the awakening forward. And I believe that that is absolutely necessary to accomplish the overall goal, which is society-wide awakening, so we can take this country back for the people. It's not about Donald Trump. It's about the end goal. My goal is not to convince people to like Donald Trump as fast as possible. And I don't think that's Donald Trump's goal either. 
everyone is going to come around to the position eventually, to the understanding eventually that Donald Trump has done something almost impossible and has done a damn good job of it. Does that mean he's perfect? No, nobody's perfect. But judging him by each and every discrete event and always siding with the explanations that always rely on Donald Trump is weak. Donald Trump is stupid. Donald Trump is an egomaniac. If you take that interpretation every time, then you don't actually see the big picture. And if that interpretation was correct every time, well, how does the thing keep moving forward? How is Donald Trump still in the catbird seat, not only for the 2024 nomination, but to become president again? And hey, maybe it'll be sooner than you think. How is it that someone can be so bad all the time and so incompetent and unworthy on so many levels and still be highly successful at maybe the hardest thing imaginable, winning the presidency over every powerful institution in the world, conquering multiple of America's most powerful, most infamous, most corrupt political families in the process under constant attack by the media and with a soft coup enacted just below the surface from before he was even elected. And what happens when he is publicly recognized as president again? Is that a win? Does that justify all of the things along the way? My argument is that it does. So that's what informs my understanding of Donald Trump. But it's not what explains why I am happy to defend him at all times. I'm happy to defend him at all times because we're at war. And Donald Trump doesn't have to be the mastermind of that whole thing. We can still know that something else is going on in the background and Donald Trump, at minimum, is the face of that thing. He is telling us what must be done. This is what to focus on as a leader does. And it turns out that despite the constant negative press, Kofefe, how is it that all the bluster and all the insults, all the mean tweets, all the publicly perceived failures and mistakes, whether it's on personnel or failing to stay in office after the stolen election or whatever other failures and mistakes you might imagine that you might come up with on your list of Donald Trump's worst moments. How does he always come through those things? OK, at the end. Well, a lot of the time it's because whatever he's accused of, whatever personal failing or political failing is being talked about, it's usually not true at all. He got blamed for midterm losses in 2022 in stolen elections. Well, the elections are stolen, so it can't be Donald Trump's fault that Republicans didn't win. Doesn't even make sense. Donald Trump's record for his endorsements was great. The Republican establishment undermined candidates around the country. That cannot be a Donald Trump failure. People went after him for years for everything surrounding Russiagate, and it turns out that entire thing was a hoax. So how can Donald Trump be blamed for his reactions to that hoax? People said that he was obstructing justice. He wasn't participating. He was trying to cover up his role in seeking foreign interference in our elections. All the people around him were criminals. All his lawyers were criminals. Everybody was a criminal because they were associated with Donald Trump. And years later, how does that look? Donald Trump was accused of rape by multiple women falsely. They had Stormy Daniels out on TV 
24 hours a day and her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, for months. Now Stormy Daniels owes Donald Trump half a million dollars and Michael Avenatti is in prison. But people still think that Donald Trump is unfaithful to his wife and a terrible person and a pervert and what? But he sits there and takes these attacks and occasionally he swings back as any normal person would do. And when this happens five times, 10 times, 20 times, a hundred times, a thousand times, when it happens every single day for seven and a half years, it might be time to say, well, all of this stuff is false. Maybe Donald Trump's not who they say he is. Maybe my perception of Donald Trump is being skewed by this constant information operation, this psychological operation to damage Donald Trump in the eyes of the American public. Maybe that's it. Otherwise, what is to be said? You don't like the sound of his voice? Well, okay. You don't like his mean tweets? Well, okay. If you want to prioritize your feelings above the outcome of this war, you have every right to do that. But I'm not going to do that, so I don't care about how Donald Trump makes me feel. I care about whether or not this process continues successfully, and it sure seems to be. What matters is winning the war. Whether or not Donald Trump is at the top of the food chain in terms of directing this operation, he is a part of it, and he is the public-facing leader of it. Trump, the people around him, potentially the people above him, know infinitely more about all of this than we can possibly access. So at some point, it actually does make sense to trust them that they know what they're doing because the alternative is giving the country away. And in terms of understanding him and his behavior, the alternative is the mainstream media, the people that we know are lying on purpose to support the regime. So why would we give them an inch? We've convinced ourselves these days that the best place to be is in this cushy middle where everybody can unify. We need to reunify with all of these people on the other side. That's what's going to make all of this go away. And America will just be perfect after that, except that's not going to make it go away. And that's not what's going to make America great again. It should not be our priority to unify with the people that have supported the regime, especially not in the last few years through COVID, through a stolen election, through a false flag insurrection akin to the Reichstag fire. We can actually plant our flag and simply wait for them. Yes, they are fellow citizens. Some of them are friends. Some of them are family members. There are neighbors and we would love to have them back in the fold. But that doesn't mean we walk back in their direction and wait for them there. We continue walking forward and wait for them to catch up and hope that they do. I hope that they all do. And for the record, people who took the vaccine I hope they figure it out as fast as possible. There are doctors out there working on uh, detox protocols. There are people out there who believe things can be done about the problems being caused by these vaccines to prevent long-term erosion of the immune system and whatever harms the vaccines might cause. If you took it, start researching that, okay? I'm sorry that you felt like you got forced into doing something and it was a bad decision. We all make bad decisions. I've made plenty of them, which is why I've tried to refocus my life on making fewer of them by examining my past and what characteristics of mine led me to those wrong decisions. 
But to bring it back to Trump, I don't actually care about unifying with those people. Everybody always says, yeah, but you need those people to win. Well, okay, if that's true, that's still not true for another mm, 21 months. And a lot is going to change during that time. I'm actually not worried about people coming back into the fold because as people realize what's happened and who was responsible for it, they're going to come toward Donald Trump, which is what we've seen throughout Donald Trump's entire period in public life. He had, we're told, 63 million votes in 2016, and he had, we're told, 75 million votes in 2020. So he increased his voter base by 20% while in office, something that is absolutely unheard of in our history. And we're supposed to believe that he is not leading. He's not attracting new people to the cause. It's exactly what he's doing. And he may not be doing it in a traditional way and one that appeals to consumers of mainstream culture, but it is happening. And the people are coming toward him because they know what he's doing and what he represents. And if you want to pretend that Donald Trump is weak and stupid and narcissistic and irrelevant and incompetent, why is it that still after seven and a half years, multiple coup attempts, multiple impeachments, stolen elections, false scandals, all of that, why is the regime still so scared of him and his supporters? Why are they trying to destroy Donald Trump all the time and demoralize his movement? It's because it's not a threat to the regime? Of course not. Donald Trump represents the biggest threat to the regime. Donald Trump also represents the biggest champion of our side in this war. He is our best fighter. He's the apex predator. There is no one in public life even close to being on his level in how he is waging this war. And this war is largely an information war, largely a psychological war. It actually does require manipulating the public understanding, manipulating the public conversation, being able to shift the public conversation where you need it shifted. And Donald Trump knows that which is why he employs so much of the bombast, because it attracts attention to him, which attracts attention to issues that the media would never mention or cover otherwise. He is an absolute brawler, and that is exactly what we need. And again, my friends who I'm talking about appreciate this stuff about Donald Trump. It's also just frustrating. And they have the same feeling that I used to have Throughout most of 2020, why can't Trump just say the right thing? If he just said this right thing, he could fix this thing for himself. Other people would understand. But the truth is, other people wouldn't understand. If you are addicted to the central narrative, if you are totally keyed into that, they are just going to tell you that whatever Donald Trump says is wrong. When he tones it down and speaks more like a polished professional politician, they say that he has lost energy when he brings high energy and discusses certain issues in a provocative way. Well, then they say he's mean and nasty and a bigot and he's riling up his supporters for violence. They have a response to everything. They tailor their narrative to any given reality. So there's no point in helping them do that. We have this idea that somehow credibility is a product of some sort of feigned objectivity. And that's what it is. It's feigned. 
there are plenty of people who call themselves conservatives and they make a career out of sometimes saying that Trump is good so that Trump supporters are like, oh, maybe this guy's on our side. And then the rest of the time talking about how bad Trump is and how he's exactly like what the media has always said he is. And you can look at somebody like Ben Shapiro as the perfect example of that. How does that help? How does that make Ben Shapiro objective? It doesn't. I don't care about perceived objectivity. I care about whether or not the things I say map onto reality and are useful because those are the standards of actual truth. If the media claims that Donald Trump called fallen soldiers suckers and losers, it's not objective to say that there's no evidence that Donald Trump ever said that, but he could have said it because he does say some really stupid things. That's not objective. All that is, is saying that, well, you know, you can't totally trust what the media says while drawing the same moral meaning and conclusions that the media draws. It's not objective to pretend that both sides might be right when one side is clearly lying. The other side at that point in the search for truth, in the attempts at truth, is automatically the side that should be preferred and perhaps even defended against people who are obviously lying. There is no use in that situation for trying to create a perception of objectivity. So that's why I don't try. It is useless. And those objective positions, those middle of the road positions that are so popular on Twitter and in mainstream media, they can't help you understand the big picture and they can't help guide your actions because they don't even make sense. They are disconnected from every other thing we know about Donald Trump, for instance, and we know their effect. Their effect is to reaffirm the central narrative on some level. Reaffirming the central narrative is the problem. That's what hinders the awakening. And here's the thing. If we're at war and Donald Trump is our greatest champion, our greatest warrior in that war, then we are literally fighting against ourselves if we try to figure out all of these ways that we can say Donald Trump is bad. We are literally doing the work of the enemy at that point, and I'm not going to do that. So rather than doing that by default, I'm going to attempt to understand what Trump is doing in a different way that actually does make sense in a bigger picture point of view. And I don't know that I'm right. I'm not going to be right all the time, but I certainly think I'm generally right. I'm absolutely certain I'm directionally right about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not that awful person that he is made out to be in the media and that too many Trump supporters and Trump voters simply accept must be partially true. There's no reason why that must be partially true. Even if Donald Trump was that person in the past, people do change. They do grow. They do mature, particularly in the new life that Donald Trump has decided to pursue. This new life has not made Donald Trump wealthier. He seems to actually still be pretty happy and congratulations to him. But does anyone know anyone else who would want to put up with what Donald Trump has put up with for the last seven and a half years? I cannot imagine that. The regime knows he's their greatest threat. We know that Donald Trump is the greatest threat to the regime. And if we know we're at war, 
than tearing him down because he's not doing things in a way that suits our personal preferences seems to be antithetical to the cause and perhaps even a bit nihilistic. So let's not lose sight of the bigger picture and the end goal. One person who's not losing sight of the bigger picture and the end goal is Donald Trump. He released a video statement today addressing the Chinese Communist Party. And it's no coincidence that this video was released during the regime's Swiss Coachella. China is buying up our country while corrupt Democrats and rhino type politicians in Washington have been spending trillions of dollars on the Green New Deal nonsense, foolish foreign wars and providing lavish benefits to illegal aliens from all over the planet. China has been spending trillions of dollars to take over the crown jewels of the United States economy, and they are doing that. China is buying up our technology. They're buying up food supplies. They're buying up our farmland. They're buying up our minerals and natural resources. They're buying up our ports and shipping terminals. And with the help of a corrupt influence peddlers, Like the Biden crime family, China is even trying to buy up the pillars of the U.S. energy industry because, frankly, Biden and the group don't care about real energy. They only care about nonsense energy, energy that doesn't work and it never will. While some are focused on China's purchases near power plants and military bases, the fact is we should be very concerned about all Chinese communist activity in the United States. As I have long said, economic security is national security. China does not allow American companies to take over their critical infrastructure, and America should not allow China to take over our critical infrastructure. I didn't allow it when I was president, and I won't allow it when we become president again. To protect our country, We need to enact aggressive new restrictions on Chinese ownership of any vital infrastructure in the United States, including energy, technology, telecommunications, farmland, natural resources, medical supplies, and other strategic national assets. We should stop all future Chinese purchases in these essential industries, and we should begin the process of forcing the Chinese to sell any current holdings that put our national security at risk. If we don't do this, the United States will be owned by China, which would make them very happy. When I'm president, I will ensure that America's future remains firmly in American hands, just as I did when I was president before. It'll happen again, and our country will be stronger than ever. Thank you. Now, this is not only going after the CCP-related purchases of American land near critical American assets. It's also going after Joe Biden's role with CEFC in helping to facilitate the globalist Western Hemisphere version of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And that is what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were getting paid so much money to do. This is the global plan. And Donald Trump has been specifically acting against that global plan for the last seven and a half years to the point where that global plan is not only becoming obvious to everyone, its failure is becoming obvious to everyone. 
So let's check in with Davos and the Davos problem. This is the UN General Secretary today, Antonio Gutierrez. Politicians need to understand, and sometimes we are faced with these kind of challenges. It is better to take today decisions that will eventually be not popular, but it will be essential to be able to shape the public opinion itself. The Secretary General of the United Nations just said to the global elite that they need to make decisions that will not be popular, but they need to make them because in the future they're going to shape the public's mind about these things and their agenda, of course, will be accepted by everyone. And the reason is because no one's going to have any choice, at least in their model. Their agenda is total control. They want to control where you can go, when you can have electricity. They want everyone monitored with their health records, their vaccine subscription status, their social credit score, and their central bank digital currency, all on one app that they can also control. So it's okay to make unpopular choices because if the people don't go along, then they simply can't participate in life. They're going to have to go along. And hey, if it takes them a while to get on board, well, that's what stolen elections are for. So we talked on Friday about the polycrisis and how they detail all of these problems in the world that they are almost solely responsible for creating and how these problems, they say, are all interconnected. So you can't fix any of the problems without attacking the whole thing. And they need all the power, all the money, all the control to be able to do that. If you can't implement their solutions to fix the whole thing, well, then you can't fix any of it. And all of these societally disruptive problems are just going to keep happening. So what sort of model do we need for the entire world to be able to address these problems? Well, this article came out today on weforum.org. That is the World Economic Forum's official website. Okay. This article I'm about to read is in fact not a conspiracy theory. This is literally the argument they're making right from the source. The headline is why it's time for the dawn of stakeholder geopolitics. Now we've talked many times about how their economic model, they call it stakeholder capitalism, which means governments and the transnational corporations work hand in hand to facilitate each other's agenda. World governments work to create an environment that allows these partner transnational corporations to benefit. And in order to be one of these partner transnational corporations, then you need to implement their societal and cultural agenda within your company. And you need to reflect that agenda to the world in a way that encourages consumers to reflect that agenda as well. So all the power coalesces among infiltrated governments and these partner transnational corporations, the fusion of government and corporations to implement their totalitarian agenda and turn the people of the world into their subjects. That's fascism. And I'm not overstating it. They say it 
themselves. They just call it stakeholder capitalism. So no one will ever think, oh, hey, isn't that fascism? What about state capitalism in China? Oh, well, that's just communism. The party responsible for implementing it in China is literally the Chinese Communist Party. Capitalism for the benefit of certain stakeholders isn't capitalism, certainly not free market capitalism. Capitalism in conjunction with the state is definitely not capitalism. But now we're going beyond stakeholder capitalism. Now we need stakeholder geopolitics. Over the last few years, the world has experienced a gradual slide from cooperation to competition to conflict. The post-Cold War international order has been replaced, first by a period of intensifying global rivalry and then by war in Europe. In this new and unsettled era, world leaders must adapt their understanding and practice of geopolitics because time is running out to address critical global challenges. In a year that began with conflict and warning signs of geoeconomic fragmentation, it was remarkable that November 2022 delivered a restoration of U.S.-Chinese climate dialogue, a reaffirmation by the G20 of the need for economic cooperation, and an agreement at the U.N. Climate Conference in Egypt that provided historic, quote-unquote, loss and damage, climate adaptation funding for vulnerable countries. It's probably just a coincidence that all of this happened in November 2022 after the regime stole the American midterms. That's what restored the American and Chinese partnership. Got it. But such welcome news should not be taken as a sign that a retreat from geopolitical rivalry is underway or that a cooperative order can fully be restored. World powers still hold starkly different versions of what should guide global politics and are vying to shape the new world order accordingly. I didn't just make that up. That's there on the page, the World Economic Forum website. And remember, Klaus Schwab himself has bragged about how the World Economic Forum and its young global leaders have infiltrated governments around the world. You can go on the website Go to their partners and read all of the partner corporations. You will see the names of companies that affect your everyday life all day long. I'm not making it up. It's right there. Shape the new world order accordingly. That's their words. For this reason, current efforts at cooperation could prove fleeting, giving way to new rounds of conflict. In such a turbulent geopolitical climate, the question becomes, what can a framework for durable cooperation look like? This question has gained even greater urgency against the backdrop of an ongoing pandemic, a potential global recession, heightened nuclear proliferation risks, and a now or never moment for addressing climate change. Well, hey, guys, how about never? OK, let's just roll the dice and see what happens if we don't make it through 2030 and the sun attacks the world so powerfully that we all just instantly die from our oceans flooding over all our land, including all of their coastal homes everywhere. Well, then I guess we were wrong. We should have listened to you Nazis the whole time. I actually feel kind of bad for them that they're thinking it's a, a now or never thing like it's an option. People are choosing never 
Why won't they listen to us? We're just trying to save the planet from the sun for everyone. And if you don't let us, we are going to destroy your lives. These challenges are cascading and creating what some analysts refer to as a global polycrisis. A situation in which multiple crises compound one another. Well, some analysts didn't say that. You guys literally made that up last week. Because the drivers of these crises are not confined to any one nation. Addressing them requires leaders to come together to forge solutions, despite the reality of broader geopolitical disagreement. So you heard Secretary General Antonio Guterres say that they would have to make unpopular choices for the people expecting the people to just go along. Now they need to make unpopular choices for nations and the nations must go along as well. Simply put, leaders need to manage geopolitical competition in a way that preserves space to align with diverse parties on shared interests. The alternative, competing to define the era ahead, but failing to untangle the knot of common challenges, will leave countries worse off in the long run. Balancing competition and cooperation is a tall order, but there are lessons from the private sector, particularly regarding its growing embrace of stakeholder capitalism. Over the last decade, as governments were retreating from cooperation, the business community has been moving in the opposite direction, coming together to address common challenges while still competing vigorously in the marketplace. And if you have any awareness of anything that's going on, you can actually see that the corporations are not really competing vigorously in the marketplace. They are essentially taking advantage of the governments globally consolidation of power among a certain small set of companies aligned with their agenda. And then those companies basically just divide the spoils. That's not vigorous competition. It's basically just supplying different brands of the same stuff and the same messaging age of distrust as the unipolar, largely cooperative post cold war order recedes in the rear view mirror. World powers are competing to mold the era that will replace it. In the resulting mood of uncertainty, there is a danger that critical issues in need of collective action, from climate change to global economic risks to the COVID-19 pandemic, will go unaddressed. Yet this challenging geopolitical moment has also made it possible to imagine a new way of aligning interests, one that could help restore faith in global collaboration. You see, they need to tackle these problems globally especially climate change, a problem they made up, global economic risks, a problem their system has caused, and the COVID-19 pandemic, something that they literally created, then backed with a narrative that had no connection whatsoever to reality. Nonetheless, we need the whole globe aligned in order to address these problems, not fix them, just address them. For a quarter century after the end of the Cold War, global collaboration was based on mutually agreed upon rules of transnational relations. Countries worked together to advance shared interests, particularly on issues related to the economy, the environment and technology. To be sure, there were significant episodes of disagreement, but to a large extent, 
Countries look to maintain stability, security, and prosperity. During this time, the share of the world's population living in extreme poverty declined from over 35% to close to 11%. For the bottom 40% of global population, overall income increased by close to 50%. These results were largely possible thanks to a more integrated global economy. And then the pandemic lockdowns pushed hundreds of millions of people back into poverty. And now we have inflation that is eradicating all of their gains in wealth. So everything was going just great. But despite all their control and their greatness and their competence and how well they're doing, we nonetheless find ourselves in a polycrisis. The birth of the World Trade Organization in 1995 and China's entry to it in 2001 were illustrative of this cooperative economic ethos. Between 1992 and 2017, trade as a proportion of world GDP rose by almost half. And as the World Economic Forum has noted, trade and capital liberalization brought the integration of markets and cross-border expansion of value chains to a new plateau. Okay. The coordinated global response to the 2008 financial crisis, including by central banks and G20 countries, showcased the prevailing instinct for economic cooperation. Oh, man, I thought that that crisis just destroyed American homeowners while certain people and institutions got really rich. But apparently that's a global crisis. Thank goodness the adults are back in the room and the experts have it all under control on climate change. A similar sentiment was evident in the 2015 Paris Agreement, which committed 196 parties to advancing far-reaching climate targets and to, quote, enhancing international cooperation for climate action. Technology added yet another layer to the fabric of global cooperation as the Internet connected countries in new ways and enabled new forms of collaboration. In 2015, over 40% of the world was connected to the Internet, up from about 15% a decade earlier. But by 2020, the World Economic Forum was warning that an expansion of geopolitics was taking place. What does that even mean? An expansion of geopolitics? Geopolitics already accounts for the whole world. Always buzzwords, always doublespeak. Everything is always being enhanced or expanded or eroded or impacted. As cooperation waned and competition intensified, domains where countries had previously cooperated, including the economy, the environment, and technology, were turning into zero-sum zones of competition. For instance, trade-restrictive measures such as tariffs reached historic highs in 2018, not just to protect domestic industries, but also to challenge the very foundation of an integrated global economy. Now, what do you think they're talking about in that paragraph? It sounds like they're talking about Donald Trump's policies and the policies of other sovereign nationalist nations who were moving away from the global order, because that is what's taking place right now. And the World Economic Forum is panicking. Is that possible in a world where Donald Trump is incompetent and out for the good of himself? I would suggest to you it is not. Efforts to combat climate change have suffered from a similar cooperative breakdown. 
Instead of building on the momentum of the Paris Agreement to accelerate climate action, many countries have sought to exploit newly accessible natural resources. And data technologies have been weaponized as never before, serving not to connect distant and diverse societies, but to sow mistrust between and within them, which is an odd statement coming from the people who suggest that we have shortages of natural resources and who constantly promote censorship. It sounds like the problem is that they just want to control all the resources and control all the communications. They just disguise it as a lack of cooperation or a lack of connectivity. The challenge to cooperative systems, exemplified by the rise of nationalist political forces around the world, was born of a feeling in many societies that globalization and mechanisms of global cooperation were not solving shared problems, but rather deepening inequities. The pandemic strained an already brittle global system. Well, that's one way to describe the problem. The other way to describe the problem is, hey, commies. We don't have any interest in your policies. American citizens are supposed to control what happens in America, not some futuristic Nazi space cult in Davos. As many countries turned inward and prioritized their domestic health needs, shoring up their own medical equipment and vaccine supplies, global follow through on vaccine pledges fell short. Sad. Failure to mount a cooperative response to the pandemic only sowed additional mistrust in the global multilateral system. Yeah, that's weird. People didn't like it when you lied about a pandemic, acted in a way that made the situation much worse while claiming to be saving lives, and then using all of these failures as the justification to expand global control from centralized global organizations. It's crazy that the citizens of the world didn't realize how great that would be for them. A new kind of geopolitics. At a moment when global rivalry is running hot and support for globalization is cooling, a new period of cooperation in the style of the post-Cold War era is not in the offing. So apparently global rivalry is experiencing climate change and a new period of cooperation is not in the offing. What a strange admission. It sounds like they're saying the global agenda is failing. Still, there is room for a shared geopolitical compass that helps countries align with respect to common interests. Here, developments in the private sector are instructive. You got that? The corporations have figured it out. Over the past decade, the business community has made great strides towards solving shared problems while also increasing competitiveness in the marketplace. This has largely been accomplished through the adoption of stakeholder capitalism, which measures the value of a business activity not by its short-term profit, but by its impact on people and the planet. Multiple studies have shown that companies that take such an approach outperform companies that do not in terms of market capitalization. And what would you expect an ESG score to produce? The entire premise is that organizations that go along with the agenda are going to see more investment in their organization. That's the system they've put in place. And they make it sound like this is the result of natural market forces. This is just a better way of doing business. 
except it's not a better way of doing business. It's only a way to create monopolistic agenda conformity. And the justification for all of this, of course, is studies have shown. The reason companies that adopt stakeholder capitalism perform well is that they extend the yardstick by which they measure value. Instead of chasing short-term profit, they look to generate sustainable revenue. By focusing on the long term, these companies improve their ability to withstand acute shocks and disruptions. And by taking into account the interests of their customers, employees, and communities, they generate commitment and buy-in from constituencies that are vital for boosting their overall business performance. Perhaps not surprisingly, as stakeholder capitalism has spread over the last decade, trust in business has risen across most industries, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer. And that sounds like an authoritative source, so it must be true. You see that? Everybody trusts corporations more because they are implementing the ideas that everybody wants. And sure, those ideas might seem like unpopular choices at the beginning, but once we have shifted the public mind to accept the new normal, well, then everybody's on board. And if they're not on board, we'll just prevent them from going to restaurants or flying on planes or using social media platforms or being able to maintain relationships with their friends and family after we have sufficiently called them bigots and homophobes and transphobes and Islamophobes and blah, 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 blah. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Practicing stakeholder geopolitics would require looking past short-term power plays and towards steps that advance long-term interests. States would seek to make themselves competitive in the marketplace for influence, ideas, and investment, but also emphasize addressing global challenges. Doing so would increase the odds of making meaningful progress on interconnected global challenges, thereby helping to restore faith in collaborative approaches to geopolitics. In practice, Adopting stakeholder geopolitics would mean focusing on three main priorities. The first involves looking at interests through a holistic prism. Companies assess the degree to which they embrace stakeholder capitalism by looking at their performance on a variety of environmental, social, and governance metrics. Look at that. ESG. Similarly, Governments could assess their commitment to stakeholder geopolitics by looking at how they factor global threats and opportunities into their strategic decision making. The plural here is deliberate. And let's read that sentence one more time. Governments could assess their commitment to stakeholder geopolitics by looking at how they factor global threats and opportunities into their strategic decision making. That sounds a whole lot like governments better sign up for the program or face cascading global threats. And if they do sign up well, then what they have is global opportunities. Although governments need to address specific challenges such as climate change or a worsening global economy, it is crucial that they do not view these issues as discrete areas of action. States should assess how their strategic actions affect global priorities and calibrate their behavior accordingly. 
More specifically, states should ensure that their efforts to improve their geopolitical position also advance common aims, such as those delineated in the Sustainable Development Goals. And what he's talking about right there is the UN Sustainable Development Agenda. There are 17 pillars of the UN's Sustainable Development Agenda. No poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, reduced inequalities, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions, and partnerships for the goals. So you have to embrace all that. That is going to usher in the new global utopia. And if you don't embrace it, then you are going to face a series of cascading global threats directed at your country because not cooperating is going to be unsustainable, according to the Nazis at the World Economic Forum. States are already factoring global challenges into their strategic planning. For instance, the national security strategy released by the Biden administration in October 2022 places climate action front and center on the U.S.'s national security agenda. Chinese 14th five-year plan released in 2021 similarly made climate action a central policy priority. This is an important start. Practicing stakeholder geopolitics would entail expanding this approach to account for other global priorities, such as ending poverty, protecting global commons, and advancing common frameworks for reducing cyber risks. The second priority of stakeholder geopolitics concerns the stakeholders themselves. Just as stakeholder capitalism entails accounting for a company's impact on employees, customers, and members of the community within which the business operates, stakeholder geopolitics means pursuing policies and positions that serve the interests of a state's citizens, allies, and other stakeholders. But hey, if the citizens don't actually feel they're being served by this agenda, well, sometimes the leaders of these nations will have to make unpopular decisions and then shape the minds of the citizenry in order to accept these unpopular choices. Because ultimately, these choices are made to serve the state's allies and, quote, other stakeholders. Because it's global agenda, even if the citizens don't like it, or you're going to face a cascading series of global threats known as the polycrisis. At first glance, it may seem that practicing stakeholder geopolitics would require governments to put in place protectionist policies that aim to benefit their domestic constituencies. But the opposite is true. Protectionist measures often create disruptions that end up harming consumers and markets. Recently, the wave of global inflation has prompted a corresponding wave of protectionist measures, notably on food and fertilizers. But as politically appealing as these measures are, they harm almost everyone. So if a country is trying to protect its food and its fertilizer, the ability to actually grow food 
for the citizens of the country. What it's actually doing is causing problems for other countries. It's causing problems for the global agenda. And we just can't have that. They harm almost everyone. You see, if a country wants to protect its own people, they're doing so at the cost of everyone else. And they have to bear the moral burden of destroying lives all around the globe for not going along with the plan. The declaration on food security made at a ministerial meeting of the World Trade Organization last June, in which leaders committed to avoiding export restrictions on food, offers a model for how governments could apply a stakeholder geopolitics lens to policymaking. A growing number of global agreements already seek to advance the interests of diverse stakeholders. For instance, the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement includes gender equality as an objective, and the trade area's secretariat is preparing for negotiations over a protocol on women and youth in trade. Oh, that's good. Similarly, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, New Zealand, and Peru have signed the Global Trade and Gender Arrangement, which aims to, quote, promote mutually supportive trade and gender policies and unlock new opportunities to increase women's participation in trade as part of broader efforts to improve gender equality and women's economic empowerment. And it's funny because I was just reading in Cosmo how that is what women have always wanted. Number one on last year's list of biggest turn-ons was participation in trade as part of a broader effort to improve gender equality. And I know, girls, you're just like, well, my husband can just forget about our anniversary this year. I've heard that stakeholder politics might unlock new opportunities for participation in trade. It's what I've always wanted. The final priority of stakeholder geopolitics is collaboration. Coinciding with the rise of stakeholder capitalism has been the formation of purpose-driven partnerships across the business community. For instance, the World Economic Forum's Alliance of CEO Climate Leaders, founded in 2014, brings together the CEOs of over 120 companies, some of which compete directly with each other, to set ambitious climate targets and reduce their company's emissions. These partnerships make sense because they align parties, ensuring that actions are synchronized rather than at cross purposes and help promote meaningful industry-wide action. Everyone has to participate in the agenda together. Promising purpose-driven partnerships are taking shape on the geopolitical stage as well. At the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference in Scotland, the World Economic Forum and U.S. President Joe Biden launched the First Movers Coalition, which includes over 65 companies that have committed to purchasing emerging clean technologies. As part of this effort, the governments of Denmark, Germany, India, Italy, Japan, Norway, Singapore, Sweden, the U.K. and the U.S. have pledged to implement policies that will assist in commercializing these clean technologies. The coalition is a powerful example of how governments can come together to pursue common objectives. And thank goodness, don't you feel that your stolen vote was totally worth it now? A winning formula. The current moment of geopolitical uncertainty has arisen during what the UN has said must be a, quote, decade of action, end quote, on the sustainable development goals. 
Falling short on these goals would have dire implications, causing poverty, hunger, and disease to rise, especially in developing countries. Climate efforts are similarly pressing. According to the 2022 UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if the necessary actions are not taken, quote, many key risks are projected to intensify rapidly in almost all regions of the world, causing damage to assets and infrastructure and losses to economic sectors and entailing high recovery and adaptation costs. And that's an awfully strange thing to say about what's going to happen from the weather changing. What else do these crafty old Nazis have up their sleeve? Such outcomes would threaten stability and diminish prosperity, not sparing any country or economy. And they can only be prevented if leaders work together to forge solutions. But the fact that these challenges have arisen within and in some cases because of an already challenging geopolitical environment means that cooperation will not always be easy. Stakeholder geopolitics, which encourages countries to take a long-term view of strength and power, enables allies and adversaries alike to solve global problems cooperatively while remaining competitive. Ultimately, every country must decide for itself whether to practice stakeholder geopolitics, but doing so will yield shared progress on global priorities and, as a result, individual advantage. What you have just heard described is the worldwide fusion of government and corporations to enact this agenda decided upon by the world's wealthiest, most powerful people, combined with an outright threat against any country that fails to go along. Now, if you're content with owning nothing and being happy, then maybe this form of global fascism, I mean, stakeholder geopolitics, is your thing. But if you actually like your country and the values your country was founded on, and you hope your country reflects those values again and on into the future, then defeating this is an absolute priority. So thank goodness we are blessed with a leader who understands that and fights against this relentlessly. These people admit that their project is backsliding and they explicitly name the reasons the policies implemented by sovereign nationalist leaders around the world, most particularly Donald Trump. Now, luckily, the global elite just simply aren't very smart. They're primarily a bunch of rich kid ne'er-do-wells who think that they are astounding intellects, who pretend to have unlocked all the solutions to all the world's problems. And it's up to them to usher in their utopian vision of the new world order. Again, their words, not mine. And so I want to share a little highlight reel that shows off some of the most profound utterances of all the people better than us. Let's start with John Kerry telling the Nazi elite how much better than us they are. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings, 
because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. Okay, spaceman, I don't know what touched you, but you sound absolutely insane. We select group of humans? Okay, you guys are going to save the planet? Got it. You think I'm being hyperbolic when I talk about these people's self-image? There you go. That's what it is. We are the most important people in the world, the only ones capable of saving the earth from the sun on behalf of everybody, and we promise to do it at some point after they give us all the money, the power, and the control. And if we don't do it, then what we'll need to do is ask for more money, power, and control. Here's the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, talking about how much people should be allowed to say. When uh, we grew up and read the papers, the editor took the pride in everything being correct in the paper. And now there's no editing. It's up to the individual to then assess if this is true or not. Yes, but there is a responsibility of the platforms. I mean, um, one can argue uh, if... If uh, we have something, as you, as you mentioned, in the media, and if someone is uh, attacked in a way that is wrong, uh, uh, there is a possibility to go to the court. Uh, in social media, there is no responsibility. And I can understand the argument of social media platforms saying, well, this is put by people, so it's not our responsibility. But the truth is that the algorithms are made in such a way that they amplify in a preferential way, a certain number of things. And whether, when the algorithm amplifies, then there is, in my opinion, a responsibility, and there should be accountability, including through the legal system in relation to those situations. At least when false information, defamation, all other kinds of things are benefited, are not only just what someone puts, but are benefited by the way the algorithm amplifies that. That creates, in my opinion, a responsibility of the platform. The head of a global governing body demanding censorship. How great is that? Here's Christia Friedland, the actual granddaughter of a Nazi propagandist and also the deputy prime minister of Canada, talking about Ukraine. There is a lot we can learn from what Ukraine is doing right now. Uh, and that is ultimately the reason that I think we should have a lot of confidence. I think Ukraine is teaching all of us, again, the true strength of democracy. Something that in good times, it's easy to not think about that much, Fareed. And I think what we see in Ukraine is people who are free, people who understand what they're fighting for, and I think very critically, people who have social solidarity. You know, it is so important that President Zelensky is there 
that you have millionaires, multimillionaires, and their sons and daughters in Ukraine and on the front line. This is a fight of the whole country. So Zelensky and Ukrainian oligarchs are on the front lines of the Ukraine war, saving their democracy, those free people. And that's kind of a strange thing to say, you know, if you're not a Nazi, because what Zelensky is actually doing is banning all opposing political parties and whatever churches and belief systems he doesn't like. It's also worth noting that Ukraine's government has been overthrown by the global regime with the help of the United States twice in the last two decades. So the whole democracy thing there just ah, doesn't fit normal definitions of democracy. What's that? You want to hear from election denier Al Gore about how the sun is attacking the earth? Well, okay. Bring these emissions down. And, and just to put the science in a, a slightly different context, people are familiar with that thin blue line that the uh, astronauts bring back in their pictures from space. That's the, that's the part of the atmosphere that has oxygen, the troposphere. Uh, and it's only five to seven kilometers thick. That's what we're using as an open sewer. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at interstate highway speeds, you'd get to the top of that blue line in five minutes. And all the greenhouse gas pollution would be below you. We're still putting 162 million tons into it every single day. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. So in answer to your question, I would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had. And we need have had and we need to make some changes. Science guy is foaming at the mouth. Are the oceans boiling? I have not even heard that one before, and I have no idea what the hell a rain bomb is. But it sounds like Al Gore thinks he's Poseidon or something. All of these things are so scary. We just have to go along with their program. There's no other choice. There's no other rational choice. We just have to listen to these people. They're better than us. They're smarter than us. And they're certainly more moral. They want to fix everything for everyone. And they know the only way to do it. Because normal citizens, you have to understand, they only want to fix things for themselves. They could never align on those goals out of their own free will. The market could never influence those sorts of things. We need them all to be forced into doing the thing that the best people want. That's the only way to save us. Are you not scared enough yet? Well, how about this? Here today to share the findings of the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Security Outlook uh, Report 2023. This is a result of uh, research in collaboration with the forum's communities and our partner Accenture, which we've 
uh, interviewed and sought input from over 300 executives globally. The most striking finding that we found is that 93% of cyber leaders and 86% of cyber business leaders believe that the geopolitical instability makes a catastrophic cyber event likely in the next two years. Geopolitical instability causes cyber attacks, cyber events, perhaps even a cyber pandemic, and it's likely within the next two years. In fact, it sounds like the sort of thing that might impact the outcome of the 2024 American presidential election, but I'm sure it's totally unrelated. They can't predict a cyber event. I mean, they are doing it right now, but they can't predict a cyber event, even though they'll cause it, but they can't predict a cyber event. It's just like a global pandemic that totally emerged from a wet market from some bat in a cave. They can't predict it, They're just absolutely certain that one of them is going to happen soon. But here's the thing. If everyone just gets on board, if all the countries around the world get on board and force their citizens to get on board, you know, they're going to have to make some unpopular choices, but then they are going to mold the collective mind to accept those choices and actually love those choices. And in return, the citizens of the world are going to have things like their diets improved immeasurably with healthier, more sustainable, higher protein foods. Just check it out. It's a very important point that you are addressing. Um, My daughter, 24, inspired me and said that, how can you advocate for these zero carbon value chains if you still eat meat. And so I stopped eating meat. Now the math would say, well, you need to stop eating meat in 11 years to compensate for a flight to Thailand. Yes, but if a billion people stop eating meat, I tell you it has a big impact. Not only does it have a big impact on the current food system, but it will also inspire innovation of food systems. Mm -hmm. And I predict that we will have proteins not coming from um, meat in the future. They will probably taste even better. So why are we trying to mimic meat if we can have a better taste? They will be zero carbon and much healthier than the kind of food that we eat today. That is a mission that we need to get on. I can inspire you to maybe look at an organization called EAT, easy to remember, Eat, who have all the facts on this and who have the policies necessary, the innovations necessary and the scale necessary in order to make food systems sustainable and healthy. Well, that sounds healthy, delicious and sustainable. Everyone should visit the Eat Foundation's website. And if you do that, use the little search feature and type in insect protein and see what you get. What else will bring you a ceaseless and unbounded sense of joy and happiness in the future emerging utopia while owning nothing? Let's hear from Klaus. The Global Collaboration Village is a pioneering effort to use the metaverse for the public good, to create global cooperation and to strengthen global cooperation 
in the metaverse or using metaverse technologies. And we are pleased to create this uh, global collaboration village in cooperation with uh, Accenture and with uh, Microsoft. So the idea is to bring all the stakeholders, governments, business, uh, civil society, together on a continued, sustained basis. This is the next phase, the next. A global collaboration village inside the metaverse. So the global collaboration project isn't working so great in the real world. Maybe we can have it work perfectly all the way inside the matrix. And hopefully we can get everybody to go in there and believe that global collaboration is the way to go. You're not going to own anything. You're going to eat bugs. You're going to have a tiny, tiny apartment that of course you don't own. But when you're not working for one of the state aligned corporations at your mindless, soul crushing, never ending Days of toil, you can live in a fake world where everyone will get along. Doesn't it all sound great? Utopia can be ours forever as long as we are willing to allow them to make some unpopular choices. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns. Don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!